Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Talking Serverless Podcast. I am your co-host, Josh Proto, and I am here joined today with Anthony Campolo, who is a contributor to Redwood JS and the host of the FS Jam Podcast. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Really stoked to be here. Yeah, you're super welcome. I appreciate you taking the time today just to, just to meet with us. You know, I'd love to start out, as I usually do, and sort of ask you to give us a rundown of your experience with serverless. Uh, how did you get to be where you are right now? Absolutely. So I'm someone who went through a kind of front-end focused coding boot camp and learned a lot of like React and some Node and that whole kind of world. And after learning that, I got really interested in this framework called Redwood JS, which is a framework built with React and is architected specifically to run in a serverless way. It basically like takes your whole backend and puts it into one big like GraphQL handler. So it's like GraphQL and it's serverless and it's this really interesting blend of technologies. Very cool. I, uh, I had not heard of RedwoodJS before getting on this call. And so I did some research and, you know, RedwoodJS talks about it's an opinionated full stack serverless web application framework for building and deploying Jamstack. And we've had some people talk about Jamstack in the past. I'd love for you to maybe explain a bit of, you know, what is Jamstack? What does it mean to be an opinionated full stack serverless web application framework? I thought that was something that really stuck out to me. Yeah, it's the the perfect combination of of buzzwords, right? It's interesting because Jamstack and serverless, they're they're related, but they're also kind of separate. So the way I think of it is I think of Jamstack is like the front end and serverless is like the back end. So what I mean by that is you have all of these applications now that are built with just like a static front end. So it's one giant bundle of like JavaScript that essentially is like built and then deployed. And so you want to have serverless stuff to glue together all the functionality you lose from not having a database. But this Redwood is trying to be opinionated because it's going for like a Ruby on Rails type thing where it's a fully integrated full stack solution. So it has something that's kind of like an ORM, which is like Prisma, and it has GraphQL for your front end to talk to your back end. So it's serverless because it gets deployed on an AWS Lambda via something like Netlify or Vercel. So these platforms are enabling front-end developers to build these quote-unquote Jamstack applications. And the way they're doing that is with these Lambdas under the hood. Oh, wow. That definitely sounds really, really exciting. Being able to empower you know, everyone was sort of the power, the flexibility, the scalability of, of Lambda. You know, I'm biased, but in serverless in general, only will add to the uh, what can get delivered, uh, the quality of the products, the quality of the of the applications, as well as lowering the time to market. What sort of things have you seen, you know, in practice? Like, what is this really allowing these people with front end skills? Uh, what are they now able to do using things like Redwood JS? Like, what is the lift from just using Jamstack to using Redwood. Yeah, the main thing is that it makes it really easy to connect to a database. So for things like needing to do authentication, so having users and it makes it 
basically better for like more data intensive applications because it's like it's all wired up for you and like you said it's it's scalable because it's it's all on AWS lambdas and there's been a handful of different applications built with it there's one called repeater.dev which is kind of like a background cron job type thing and then there's tape.sh which is for like screencast recordings and um, if you go to the the awesome Redwood repo, there's a whole list of like the eight or so kind of production applications that that have been built with it. But it's it's made to be able to build these things just with one developer. So it's like enabling developers to build more just by themselves. Fantastic. So this is really a solution that allows, you know, that individual to do a lot to be able to build their own production application. That's great. That's really fantastic. You had taken some education from like a, a more front end oriented bootcamp. Was this something that they were sort of leading you down towards? Is this sort of, you know, going above and beyond just being really passionate about serverless and budding technologies? And I guess what I'm trying to get at with this question is, do you think, you know, there should be more of an emphasis on teaching serverless, on teaching ways for individuals to be able to do these production applications themselves, rather than sort of siloing out, uh, you're only a front-end person, you're only a back-end person. That's something I see all the time, I think, in the cloud world where, you know, you're sort of doing everything, you're sort of doing being a full-stack cloud developer. But I'm interested to hear your take on that. Yeah, this is a really fantastic question and was almost like the main topic of one of the last episodes that I did with um, uh, Monarch on a full stack Jamstack podcast. So this is something that like really is a personal like topic for for me having gone through the boot camp. So we didn't learn Redwood. We just learned like basic React. So like we didn't use Gatsby or Next. Like we didn't use any sort of framework. And I think this is the right approach in the sense of you really want people to come out of it like understanding the quote-unquote fundamentals, like whatever the fundamentals of the thing you're trying to learn is. So they don't want to like bet on this like one really specific technology and like Redwood's still pretty new. So it, it makes sense. But um, I feel like it needs to eventually get you somewhere to where you can like have a tool that you can really make use of. Because the problem is once you get to the end of like your bootcamp education, you've learned all this React stuff. But if you want to like actually put that together to make a real production application, there's a lot more steps to it that like you didn't get to. And a lot of that stuff gets like filled in by a, a framework like Redwood. So I think it would be useful to get exposed to these things. I don't know if it necessarily needs to be in the curriculum, but I know for me, it was very useful to get this like kind of extra boost from the framework, having like struggled with just like vanilla React. Definitely. And I, you know, I also question myself how many production environments or jobs that you're going to be getting sort of out of the education sort of space, you know, we're only using vanilla react and there's no, it's only, unless it's like, you know, you're the only developer on the project and it's like greenfield and you're doing it yourself. You're only going to do what you know, but how many instances in the real world are you really just going to be using sort of vanilla react and not using a framework or not using a meta framework in that sort of way? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's it's interesting that you use the term meta framework because that's definitely, I feel like, the trend of where a lot of these things are going is that people are building abstraction layers on top. And I think if you look at the, the history of these tools, it makes sense because React was not intended to be a full framework that you could build a whole application with. It was intended to just be the view layer, like the, the V and MVC. It's like, a third of your application, but the front end has just eaten more and more of the functionality that needs to happen in an app. And so Redwood is kind of like trying to find that balance of getting that snappy SPA feel while still being able to connect to a database and like have your CRUD operations and all that. No, completely. And, you know, I was turned on to the, um, the actual terminology of meta framework from your podcast, actually, I hadn't really thought of it that way or heard it to sort of talked about, you know, some of these frameworks in, in that area. Uh, and I like that you bring up layers of abstraction, uh, because when I think of serverless and one of the value propositions that it has and some of the more popular like serverless frameworks for serverless, I only see that in that in this space, there's just going to be better and better tools that allow you to abstract out either writing the cloud formation or even uh, the templatization of best practices. And I'm wondering how you think maybe in the serverless world, do you see a further use for abstraction tools? Like is, is the continued use of abstraction going to help the, the, uh, from the developer side, like the developer experience? Or does there get to a point where it's actually hindering either their expertise and being able to go into the weeds and fix things? Or like, where is that balance? How do you find that balance? Yeah, you don't want to hide too much with abstractions, because ultimately, all this stuff is still is running on physical computers in physical locations on the globe somewhere. So we can build all these abstractions on top, but they're they're going to leak through it at certain points. So it's about like, letting the developer break down to the level they need to when when they need it. And I want to go back actually something you said about teaching serverless technology is we learned like how to use Netlify and like Vercel, which is kind of the highest level of abstraction in the sense that you you can deploy your whole application with just like a click of a button, but you have no idea what like anything is going on behind the scenes. Like you don't know what a a serverless function or a container or any of that kind of, you don't don't even encounter that kind of stuff. So you can't go any further than what those services are going to provide you. So we need to expand out into what is actually happening under the covers and expose those pieces that will allow front developers to make better use of all the tools underneath. Because there's also like, you know, people who are into serverless could be super into like, distributed message queues and all this like really really technical infrastructure stuff and like supposedly this is like stuff that's meant to enable you know front-end developers so you need to really think like what are front-end developers actually working with like where are the applications they're actually writing and like where are the constraints they're working with understood indeed in your in your experience and in your mind do you think there's like a i don't know like a good partitioning of you know how much experience or comfort one should be having with their, I guess, in their front end skills with abstraction versus being able to be in the weeds? Like, is it a 40-60 split? Is it, a, is it like a 50-50 split? Is that too much? If you're relying, you know, half on abstraction, do you think that is maybe a bit 
too much or has too much risk? Yeah, there could definitely be a risk if you don't know how to apply the abstraction. So there's definitely a risk of people wanting to, once they learn a framework, is uh, apply it to every single problem. And this is where we would see problems with like trying to trying to scale like you know Ruby on Rails because you'd have this big monolith and you need to know how to actually like break that stuff apart to make good use of it. So it's about having abstractions that are powerful and and useful, but also educating the developers about what the abstractions are like for and like knowing what what is being done for you because you could you could use like Redwood without necessarily using Prisma because Prisma does all the fancy like database stuff for you but you can get yourself into trouble there if you don't really understand like the SQL that it's generating so it's nice to like have a framework that can do all this stuff for you but if you're not aware of what it's doing you'll you'll get yourself into trouble really quickly so i think it's it's you know it's an education thing of understanding the tool and understanding when you would want to use a really high level abstraction when you would want to use something that's lower level and build up your own your own pieces. And you made me right now just think of a really interesting point, and that is, you know, you had talked about it's important, especially when you're first learning, to understand, you know, these quote-unquote fundamentals, the fundamentals of JavaScript, whatever that may be. I recently had a friend of mine on Twitter sort of post about, they're like, hey, is two months long enough for me to learn JavaScript? And it's sort of like, well, I mean, that like that's such a a subjective question in a certain way. You know, if you've never if you don't know any other programming languages, you know, there's people that spend, you know, eight months full time being able to have a solid idea of the fundamentals and getting an internship. If you, you know, know three other programming languages, maybe it's only gonna take you a couple of weeks. Are you learning JavaScript to develop a production ready application to scale a business around or using it for a side project? It's very, very it's a very, very challenging just to answer that sort of question, but it's one that, you know, I see in my network and tying it back into this, to these levels of, of, of abstraction, maybe I have two questions. First one would be, at what point do you think is a good time to be looping oneself in with these tools that allow you to have some levels of, of abstraction, maybe making it easier for you to, you know, reach production level? And part two, where, what would you suggest people start learning first if they're coming from this front end background uh is it redwood is it something else i'm interested in your thoughts sure sure i think you want to start off with the most basic you can so like start off with just create react app i would say and see what you can get with there and then you'll want to add in react router and then see what you can get from there I find that once you do that and you start to find the challenges that come with routing, then you start to look at things like Gatsby and Next.js because they handle things just like your project structure and how your pages you know, map to your components and, and things like that. So you will run into uh, just kind of lack of structure as you try to build more complex applications. And I think those are those are good ones to learn because they so Gatsby and Next because they've been around for a lot longer than Redwood and they've kind of proven themselves to be pretty stable technology and they both are backed by companies that have like large workforces and there's also a large community and many learning resources and those are 
a really great way to kind of expand beyond just your basic React. And if you're in Vue, you have Nuxt and Gridsome are kind of like the, the equivalent of that. Now, for Redwood, the reason why I wanted to get into it is because I wanted to actually be able to have impact on like an open source project. So I specifically looked for something that was going to be in the early kind of growth cycle. And it's it's not something that I necessarily recommend to like a complete beginner. It's um, once someone's kind of messed around a bit with like Gatsby and Next is when I would say you should start looking at something like like Redwood. But um, for me, it was just because I saw where the framework was and kind of like where it could potentially go and found it just to be really fascinating. So I spent a lot of time just like learning it and getting familiar with it and fluent with it and then eventually getting to know, you know, the team behind it and going to like meetups and things like that. So it's really useful to be able to get involved in, in an open source project. And then uh, what was the second question? I believe you sort of answered it. It was around, you know, well, which one should you start with? Uh, which I think you answered with, you know, maybe look like looking at, uh, you know, one of the more established frameworks rather than jumping straight into Redwood and that sort of thing. So thank you for that. And I appreciate you humoring with these questions about, you know, education, the education process. I used to be in education for over five years. And so it's always something that's very passionate to me of, you know, the learning process, educating the next generation of coders, of architects, of serverless experts. It's all very, you know, impassioned initiative for myself. Yeah, I mean, I actually have an, an education degree. I was, um, I was a music teacher before I started doing all of this. Oh, amazing. One thing I love to hear about is, you know, where people have started, where they've come from, and how that has influenced, you know, what they're doing now. What do you think about your past experience as, a, as an educator, educator specifically in music? Uh, music is also very close to my heart. I study Indian classical music, Hindustani, North Indian classical music, and Nepalese folk music. So it's something that, you know, I'm pouring a lot of time into. I'm also doing software as well. So I can, I definitely think there's, there's a lot of overlap and complementary skills. From your journey, what has been uh, an interesting overlap of skills, expertise, and how do you like to integrate that into what you're doing currently? Yeah, it's funny. So many people talk about the connections between music and, and programming and, and that kind of stuff. And in a very real sense, they have like absolutely nothing to do with each other in the sense that nothing I learned from learning music or education like has anything to do with coding. But what it does have in common is for me, like, how do you ex- explain a very abstract idea in, in the sense of like, we have these words to talk about music, just like we have like words to talk about programming, but the, the words aren't the thing. Like the thing is something much more like complex that you're trying to, you're trying to get across. And I always liked teaching music theory, especially because it was like the most abstract, but at the same time, it's like a fully coherent system. So once you kind of like understand the system, that like makes a lot of sense. And so it's the same thing with programming, like which kind of understand like, you know, what a loop is and what variables are and what objects are. Like you kind of, you start to learn the pieces and then you can start to like put the pieces together and like play with the pieces and then make new arrangements with the pieces and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's kind of where I think of some of the cross section being there and just like the passion for communicating these kind of like things that like everyone listens to music, just like everyone uses computers, but very, very few people like take the time to 
ask how it works, you know? And so I guess that's kind of, I always ask like, why is this work the way it does kind of thing? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's something that I can certainly relate to in that way. And I fully agree, you know, if you can, if you understand how complex systems work in one discipline, even if it's, you know, not the same, or that you're not describing the same thing at all, I think it definitely gives your mind the elasticity and and oneself the confidence to sort of jump into and learn another complex, abstract idea that can get translated into, you know, actionable results and expertise in a, in a completely different domain. So I always talk to people who are interested in serverless. And one thing, one piece of feedback I get, get from, from those who are, you know, just getting into serverless is that, you know, it's not necessarily really easy, quote unquote, to start, but it's accessible. And there's a level of accessibility of at least being able to have access to the learning resources and, uh, and practice a lot and have conversations with people who are willing to be mentors and willing to, uh, willing to just collaborate. And, you know, also a similar thing I'm hearing now with, you know, being able to go to like the meetups with Redwood JS, like that's, it's an amazing thing. If you can find community around what you're learning or what you're building, then I think it just feeds back in a positive feedback loop, uh, making everyone else who's participating just more skilled and more willing to, uh, more willing to put in the work to advance themselves. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's the open source nature of it and the community aspect of it is one of the the biggest things because it's the the framework was created by Tom Preston Warner and he was one of the original creators of GitHub. So the what we think of today as like open source and open source culture is it's entirely based around GitHub because GitHub is not just a place to keep your code, it's specifically a tool to enable developers to collaborate on code. So by creating these tools that are specifically meant for collaboration and enabling that, you can then have all of these different decentralized teams all start to to form by themselves by being able to use these tools and like just being able to sit in on the conversations that that are happening and, you know, the comparisons to other frameworks that are going on and seeing people who are actually using Redwood in production and the types of, you know, what they're actually thinking about in terms of like authentication. And so you you get to see so much that's like really high level because it's not just like a single production application. It's a project that multiple production applications are going to be built on top of with. So it's actually a larger superset of having to fit these different cases. So you actually have to think of an even larger span of things than you would have to if you were just deploying one single application. So yeah, it's it's been a, a really fascinating thing to to see and it's led to me being able to do like podcast interviews like this. And I've done, you know, a lot of meetup talks about it as well. And um, I've started to write articles and it's really incredible kind of how it can be used as like a springboard into visibility. Absolutely. That's, that's really fascinating. And the nature of open source and, you know, there's so many projects that are, that are going on and they have so much potential and many of them are being used and are very useful. I'm really interested. Are there any use cases that you've, that you've heard about or learned about that were particularly inspiring or interesting to you or used in a way that you thought was, uh, you know, maybe a bit different than you were expecting? Maybe anything particularly you can think of that maybe was relying on more of the serverless aspects 
if that was a consideration for the use case, you know, that's a bonus, but it doesn't have to be. I'm interested just, you know, to be a fly on the wall in those sort of discussions. Uh, what have, what have you found the most intriguing? Yeah. So the, the thing that is, is very fascinating from a serverless perspective is that, like I said, the way the framework is architected, it's, it's serverless by default. So essentially everyone who's putting any of these things into production, they're, they're doing it in serverless. So there's questions now of like, what is the, the maximum amount of like data you can have in a single Lambda or what's like the, the running time, like Netlify is introducing like background functions. So you could have like 15 minute long running tasks. So I guess it's just like seeing people building out more and more complex things. Like there was one that used machine learning and there's some that are data visualization. And when you think of a static site that's using like lambdas, you usually think of a blog or something like that, but it's actually being used to build a lot more full featured data heavy interactive type applications. And as I said, like it's it's all being done with kind of lambda out of the out of the box and it's being deployed in various different ways. So it was originally architected for Netlify, which is running lambdas under the hood. And then we've had um, Vercel on, added on and there's people who figure out how to do it with like the serverless framework. And I imagine people will start doing it with like architect and begin. And there's other frameworks doing this too. So like all the kind of frameworks are looking at the different ways to deploy and which kind of serverless targets you can deploy with and what the user, you know, user experience is like of, of working with those tools. And there's like, there's so much happening. And now we have like edge handlers. So you have lambdas that are like on CDNs. And and that's where a lot of this I think is is going now where you not just have like your your front end blog that's globally distributed, you have your business logic can also be globally distributed as well. Yeah, completely. That's that's really fascinating to hear. I always love hearing about, you know, whatever sort of technologies people are most intimately working with, like where they see the technology is going, what are the current problems they're trying to trying to overcome, trying to solve for, trying to architect for, as well as where they think it could be going in the future. Um, so you just sort of mentioned about sort of like the distribution of, of the business logic as well. Once that, once that happens, it's not going to be done. What do you think sort of the, the next thing is or what's where is the, the next level of, uh, of optimization or growth sort of pulling, pulling Redwood? Are there other areas that people are really finding it, it attractive for. It'll, it'll be exciting to see it work with some of these other, or people finding out ways for it to work with these other frameworks. I know, uh, you know, on the consulting side of things, Serverless Guru, we use a ton of serverless framework. We do some uh, alternative ones as well. Um, and I think I'm seeing a lot of tools optimized for, you know, the whole breadth of frameworks. And I think that makes not only the frameworks more appealing, but also these tools as well. So it's really exciting to hear, you know, all of the different options available. Yeah, it's definitely like expanding out into trying to be like kind of a generic deploy target. Cause there's this idea that um, Tom has, he calls it the, the universal deployment machine. And his idea is that he wants to be able to just deploy his application with just like, Git push and that that would be the entire kind of deployment 
deployment pipeline. And so, yeah, so I think it's about like, how do we get further and further into the full stack? And so the database would really be the kind of the, the final thing. So once you have like your business logic globally distributed, the last thing is you need your, your persistence to be to be globally distributed as well. And this is where you get into things like FaunaDB, which is what's called like a quote unquote serverless database. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. They're kind of like starting to call themselves like a data API. I think it's like their, their new branding, but they are a globally distributed database that uses the Calvin protocol, which is like this new cutting edge consensus protocol. It's like kind of like Paxos and, and they use Raft and it's like MongoDB. So it's like, document type database and that is what i think is going to be kind of where this stuff goes next is if you can then get the database like then that's the whole thing you have like a full kind of application that is fully quote-unquote serverless and so that's like a really fascinating thing to see i think oh completely i fully agree that does sound really fascinating so you know, it seems like you've been doing a ton of stuff with the contributions to Redwood JS and really understanding its, uh, you know, its vision where it's going. Are you sort of all fully invested and in sort of contributing and talking about uh, uh, Redwood and sort of all of its all of its affiliates and in the directions, or what other stuff are you are you working on? Are you passionate about? You know, I know I have too many side projects personally that's going on, uh, both technology and you know not so technology related. Um, I'm interested to, to hear like what other things are you, are you sort of working on or maybe ha I have ideas of working towards? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm someone who like, I can get interested by like a million different things and really focusing on something specific was something that I had to like kind of force myself to do. And for me, that was like really focusing on react and like learning react really well. And then that opened up the opportunity to be able to contribute to something like Redwood. And I went like really heavy into that for a long time. And so I've invested a lot into like contributing to Redwood and just like learning about it. And I think the framework in a lot of ways is like just getting started. Like we're going to hit V1 sometime within the next couple months. And then like it actually starts, but I don't want to only know this. Like I, I don't want to be like, pigeonholed into one area and for my own you know learning and knowledge so i'm interested in like svelte and view like view is now transitioning into view three with the composition api which is going to in a lot of ways mirror the transition react went through over the last two years of going from class components to hooks and like more of a functional component style so i'm really interested in that and then svelte's like a whole different kind of things it's like a compiler not you know uh, the same kind of framework as as react or view so that's really cool and then i'm really interested in dino which is the new kind of new thing new javascript uh server side language that's from the creator of node and so yeah, i've done i've done a dino talk and i did a a view talk about nuxt and i'll be doing another talk about the composition api in like a week or two so yeah, kind of like I see myself as being in mostly like the front end world in React and wanting to expand out like horizontally to other front end things and like vertically to other like like uh, back end things like server side and, and database stuff. 
Totally. That's good to know. I know, uh, I know we have a number of people on our team who uh, have really been intrigued by Dino and have played around with it. And I don't know if we've written any articles on it yet on the serverless guru side, but I think we had some drafts. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's really cool. That's a really cool piece of tech right there. And I'm really interested to see just sort of what more happens there. Um, I'd love to also ask a little bit more from you, you know, as someone who does a lot of ops and operations everywhere, I'm interested to see, get some insight into sort of, you know, the, the life cycle and the, I don't know, the feeling of what it, what it means to work in like an, on an open source project. And, you know, I don't know, maybe if someone was interested in like starting to get involved, like how do you get involved? Um, do open, open source projects also have crunch times around the holidays? Like we are, uh, like we, you know, which many of us are experiencing right now. Um, is it, is it similar to anything else you've ever worked, worked on or worked with before? You know, um, we'll one day write a whole book about open source, I would imagine. Cause it's like, it's, it's a lot of things <laughs> and it, it definitely to me, like the project I'm on now reminds me a lot of just like the camp I used to work at. Cause it's like, tighten it and it's like people doing something that they're really passionate about and like doing it because they're passionate so if you can find projects like that like that's really what you want to get involved in i would say people should anyone who wants to get into development like getting into open source like the benefits are absolutely insane and like massive but you have to really know what you're getting into you have to really know what projects you're going to pick to contribute to because there's such a huge wide range and huge spectrum of these different projects that range from like a single person doing it in their spare time to a team of people who are supporting, you know, a company to large companies like Facebook sized companies. So it's the whole spectrum. So you really want to be careful, like where you're going to be focusing your time and your energy and make sure that you're going to like get something at like, you're going to get something at it. Cause you're, most likely you're going to be doing it for free. Like that's, that's kind of the whole thing with open source is that, you know, all the stuff that I've done with Redwood hasn't been, you know, Redwood hasn't paid me for any of it, but it's led to opportunities that have paid back the time I put into it tenfold. And like, for me, I can say the trade-off was absolutely worth it. Like hundred percent, no regrets, but there's could have been a million other alternate universes where it didn't work out and it would have, you know, it could have been exploitative and, and things like that. So it's really complicated. It's, it's really nuanced and um, it's the, the better, the sooner you can start doing it, the better, but at the same time, you also need to suss out what is actually happening in open source because it's really massive and it's really hard to actually get a handle on what's important what's not and what's, what's going up and what's going down. And that's where like podcasts are just like so, so important. I can't stress like podcasts and podcasts and Twitter have been like the two things that I would say have really helped me like understand what's going on. Cause just like you can be a fly on the wall of so many conversations and you need to like pay attention to a lot of these conversations to like get the sum total of like understanding all the dynamics at play. Completely, you know, it's sort of like asking the question of, uh, you know, like, like, how do you start a business? Um, you know, like, what is it like to start a business or work in a company? You know, I'm, I for sure will be interested and looking forward to when you release yours on the, on your memoirs on the, uh, the open source days of Redwood.js and that sort of way. You know, maybe a, a tidbit, a tidbit there I'll ask is, you know, is it easy to tell like, oh, this is like a good project to, 
to invest time and energy into. Uh, like they have a good community. I'd imagine like it's pretty easy to tell if people are, you know, engaged and there's a team or a community around it. Um, but I haven't done much open source contributing myself. So I'm interested to hear what you think. Yeah, you just want to look at, you know, the the forms, look at, you know, if they have a Discord, like look at where the community is congregating, look at where people are asking questions. Like obviously GitHub is going to be a hub for a lot of things. And look at, you know, how fast are are they are they responding to questions at all, first of all. And, you know, if they are, are how fast are they responding to questions? And then how how helpful are they in how they respond to questions? And like how open is the community to newcomers coming in and asking potentially really dumb, unresearched questions and how much patience do they have for that? So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of signs that you can look for and that's hard is knowing what to look for. So I would say those are the things to look for just like see how the, the maintainers of the project actually engage with the community and you can see whether it, it seems healthy or not. And it, it'll be, you'll be able to see the patterns very quickly, especially for stuff that's on like GitHub, like you can go back months or even years and like see everything. So it's, that's the great thing about open source that there's a lot of transparency in, in that respect. It's just, you also have to be wary of like getting lost in like so much information overload. It's almost like too much transparency because once there's so much information, no one wants to bother sifting through it. But if you, if you kind of take the time you can, it's, it's pretty easy, I think, to suss out like whether uh, a project is like welcoming or not. Completely. And, and thanks for your insight on that. Uh, and I think a great point to bring up about the information overload part, because, you know, especially if, you know, there's so many projects one can contribute to out in the world, um, you know, front end, back end, depending on what your thing is, um, cloud. And so definitely if you're able to, to jump in and sort of tell you know, how fast are they answering questions? How well do they work with others? If you're able to assess those things out, then you have a really good idea of, you know, do I want to contribute to this? Do I want to be part of this team? Do I also feel motivated by the people I'm working with? I know in my experience, like working, like, like it's the people you work with or you're associated with, for me, that really drives me to, um, you know, it just drives me forward, gets me up in the morning. And that's always a good thing. Um, but I digress. Um, you know, I don't, we may be running up to the end of our time and I don't want to keep you over or anything, anything along those lines, but, you know, sort of open up, you know, what else, what else would you like to mention? What else would you like to talk about? Either the things that you're working on, your ideas of where Redwood or some of these other uh, frameworks or technologies you've talked about are going in the future, which are most excited about uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's like going to be slowly, like eating away more and more functionality of like what you would think of as a traditional kind of monolithic application. So your, your Ruby on rails or your, or your WordPress is that we're going to slowly figure out more and more patterns and ways of simplifying how to build these applications in a serverless way. And it's being attacked from various different angles from these open source frameworks and also from companies that are implementing services and by all of these kind of like virtuous cycles going on i see just like so much innovation happening and it's you know it's 
kind of always pitted as like this battle of like a winner take all type thing. And I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. It's just like you, there's so many benefits to working with this serverless stuff and so many things that it, that simplifies for you that we should always be looking for ways to leverage this technology. And as other people do that, they're going to be forced to, because you're going to have like your competitors are going to be just completely outrunning you and doing things both faster, better, and cheaper. And that's something that seems to be like serverless. You can get faster, better, and cheaper if you are willing to like take the time to change your mental model. It's like the cost is like rewiring your brain to figure out how to write these kinds of applications. But once you get it there, then it seems to be the way to go. No, I definitely love that. And one thing that you mentioned, I'm really interested in your opinion on, you know, do you think, do you think we will eventually see the death of the mono repo um, in that sort of way? Like, will there be, will there still be a place for them? Um, or will it sort of always be baked in into the technology lifecycle of, you know, if you have one, it's like, well, we need to eventually hundred percent get rid of this and actually be able to get rid of it faster than, you know, what's currently sort of happening. I know. And in my, in my world, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, Hey, we have this mono repo. We need to move to cloud. We need to move to serverless. We need to break it apart. Um, and people have never really done that before, or even some startups that I have, uh, you know, had the privilege of sort of learning a bit more about, it's like, Oh yeah, this, this crazy blockchain technology is all mono repo. Then we don't really know there's multiple versions of overlap and all this sort of stuff. And it's just sort of, you know, mind blowing to me that, you know, some of these patterns are still happening, but I think in, in like the serverless world specifically, um, the way we're planning around these, these projects and their life cycles, um, is, is this very different and we have a different eye and mindset of efficiency and mindset of, of deliverability. And so I'm interested in what you think your thoughts are. Do you think like this, this sort of mindset is going to be able to be, you know, is, is it something that's taught? Is it something that's sort of innately baked into certain developers and then they're easy to flip over to serverless? Will we ever have 100% adoption? You know, the difficult questions. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because Redwood is serverless, but it's also in some sense a mono repo because it's like one big project that has your, your front end and your back end. So you have like a web folder and you have like an API folder, but that's not the whole project because like the, the actual thing is it's like logic being deployed on like this distributed kind of um, like global microservice type architecture. <laughs> so you have something that we can think about as a single project, but that doesn't actually exist as a physical monolith on a single computer that can't be like scaled up. So it's about like we we can get away from that paradigm while keeping the mental model. So that's that's kind of what Redwood is going for is that it wants to allow developers to be able to develop in a way that it's like a monolith, but that in reality it's being deployed as this like global serverless type thing. So it's I mean the the jury is out whether it's gonna gonna work or not, but that's that's kind of like the experiment and what's what it's trying to do. For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, the jury is definitely out and it's probably going to take a couple of years at least for them to come back, convene and actually give us an answer. 
Um, but you know, I'm always of the model of, you know, you know, we need to get one wheel rolling within a scooter before we can build a car. That's sort of like design mindset. So, um, I definitely think it's a, an effective process and framework for approaching the problems and, you know, getting people used to the functionality rather than, uh, rather than the idea if that can't happen first. Um, you know, Anthony, if people are interested in, in learning more about you, more about your work, things that you like, if there's recordings of your, of your meetups or talks or blog posts on, on Redwood or anything else, uh, where would they be able to find you? Sure. So AJC Web Dev is like my general handle. So that'll be on Twitter, on GitHub, and um, Dev.2 is where I do most of my main blogging. So those would be kind of the platforms where you can you can check out what I'm what I'm doing. And um, yeah, I'm like really passionate about creating content and like communicating about these kind of things. So I'm putting out stuff kind of all the time. And um, yeah, if you're interested, I've got the the podcast too. It's just fsjam.org. And yeah, that's a kind of what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for for having me on the show. I think it's really great what people like you were doing in terms of like communicating this this stuff about serverless because as, as I was saying the benefits are like there but it's people really need that the education and like stuff like this is is super invaluable yeah I fully agree and I think you know I want to encourage all of our listeners if you uh if you're finding any of this that we've been talking about with Anthony very very intriguing or maybe just learning about it for the first time definitely check out his podcast FS Jam and some other and some of his work and that sort of thing, I think it could be, you know, really interesting and is a good, good learning resource and, uh, you know, can hopefully act as a tributary into a wider form of knowledge and education about these topics that are, you know, related to serverless and related to technology and the advancements that we're, that we're seeing. And it's always cool to see that for me, that, you know, the future is a serverless future, whether in ideology and practice. Uh, always very exciting for me. Uh, and you're very welcome, Anthony. It was great to have you on. Um, you know, thank you all the listeners of Talking Serverless for joining us again for another podcast. Um, and we will see you all next time. This is Josh Proto signing off. <laughs>